What's up, y'all? Before I read to you from Ephesians, I want to say a couple things about the readings, the one that you've already heard and the ones you're about to hear. So firstly, uh, if you have been here, I don't know, a few weeks ago, um, you already heard a good bit of Acts chapter 15, which we read just now. That's not a mistake. Um, it just so happens that because of the, the way that we're trying to get in view sort of a lot of the New Testament this year, um, that chapters like Acts chapter 15 um, need, like, we have to return to them because like, a lot of trails kind of come together in chapters like Acts chapter 15. And so a few weeks ago, we talked about that chapter with reference to the peace of Christ. Tonight, we're going to be reading that same passage or listening to that same passage with reference to um, apostles and prophets. Um, tonight, uh, as for our next reading, I'm going to change it slightly from what you have in your handout. Um, first of all, the translation I'm reading is slightly different than what you have. Both of them are fine translations, but just a heads up on that. And also, instead of, I'm, I'm going to cut what you have right there short, so I'm going to stop a little bit short of the verses that you have from chapter 3 in Ephesians, and then I'm also going to go on um, to include a portion of chapter 4 in, in my reading. All right, so here we go. This is a reading from the letter of the Apostle Paul to the Ephesians. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And then now skipping to verse 4 in chapter 4. You don't have it there, so unless you have a Bible, you just have to listen to my sultry voice read it to you. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. This is the word of God. So last week in chapter 2, we were attending the ways that the Holy Spirit constructs the church. We were paying attention to this architectural metaphor for 
the church on earth as the dwelling place of God. And it's the work of the Spirit to knit our lives together, to build our lives together as a dwelling place for God. And now I want to bring in a sharper focus the significance of something that was specified in that reading last week, um, but that we didn't pay any attention to really last week, which is the significance of the apostles and the prophets in the Holy Spirit's construction of the church. So last week in chapter 2, verse 19 and 20, we read that this household of God into which we've been membered now, that the household of God, Paul says, is built on the foundation, the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So this, as might already be evident to you, if you've been listening to what we just read from chapters three and four, this is not any, this isn't just like a passing remark for Paul. Um, Even though we might almost not hear those words, apostles and prophets, for Paul, this is is significant um, and central to, to the church as he's describing it in light of the Holy Spirit. So in Ephesians, Paul emphasizes the way that the Holy Spirit gives the church the gift of the Holy excuse me, of the apostles and the prophets. And that in fact the way the church is given to the world is in no small part through that gift. They are, as he says here, like foundational to that building that the Holy Spirit is making. In chapter three, as we just read, Paul says the apostles and prophets, he describes them as we, we might think of, uh, of them as like the midwives of a Holy, a Holy Spirit-empowered epical revelation, right? A shift in epics of history, um, a disclosure, this revelation of, of mysteries and plans that up until you have the apostles and prophets anointed by the Holy Spirit, up until then, these things that are now being revealed through them have been hidden for eternity, for ages, he says, within God's own person. Then in chapter 4, Paul describes the resurrected Jesus as being utterly victorious throughout the cosmos. He descends to the nether regions. Depending upon the translation and theologian you're reading, some people would say that this is one of the, one of the verses that we can point to to say that Jesus didn't just die, but that he, he went to hell. And some theologians would say that he harrowed hell, that he liberated it. I'm not going to get into that tonight. But he descends to the lower regions of the earth, all right? And he's exalted also uh, over, over and above every rival authority in the highest heavens. And along the way, Paul describes him as if he's just like showering gifts upon the whole of creation. And what those gifts are, are people. They're people whose lives are given to the church through specific vocations or roles. And the first two that he names are the same two vocations and roles that we've already been paying attention to in chapter 2 and 3 so far this evening. And he gave the apostles and the prophets. And then he goes on, and the list is longer, though, than just those two. The evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers— and why is that? Well, it's, it, again, is so that there might be the church in the world. But whereas in chapter 2, we had this architectural metaphor of a household or of a building or a temple, in chapter 4, instead of talking about this gift of the apostles and the prophets and all these other folks, instead of an architectural metaphor, in chapter 4, we get an anatomical metaphor. But the gist is basically the same, 
the gift of the apostles and the prophets and these other people, they're given for the growth of the body of Christ, for the flourishing of this organism that is called to mature into the full stature of Jesus, he'll go on to say in chapter 4 of Ephesians. So, again, in Ephesians, this phrase, the apostles and the prophets, it's, it's significant to the ecclesiology, the ecclesiological, or the, the, the theological vision of the church, as well as to the pneumatology, the theology of the Holy Spirit that Paul is trying to set forth to the Christians in Ephesus. Um, in Ephesians, the Spirit gives the church the gift of the apostles and the prophets. In the New Testament, more broadly, the way that the church exists at all, like this isn't just a Paul thing, but throughout the New Testament, the way that the church comes to be is through the Holy Spirit giving apostles and prophets to it. The crucial significance of the apostles and, prof and prophets, um, this is something that was obvious to Paul and his readers, and it was something that was noteworthy enough that it shows up a lot of other places in the New Testament. Um, whenever he mentions this, I, he's not bringing something that, I don't think he's, he's trying to bring something to their attention that they hadn't noticed before. Rather, he's trying to say, as he's been doing since the beginning of the letter, look at the abundance of God's blessing. And here are some things close at hand that you can recognize to see just how rich are the blessings that God has provided for us, the apostles and the prophets. And yet for us, when we think about the work of the Holy Spirit, if we think about the work of the Holy Spirit, and I think when we think about the church, um, we're liable to, to, if we were to like make a list of all the things that are significant about it, it might be that the apostles and prophets might not ever be among those things that we think of that are, that are prominent on the horizon to us as gifts and provision of the Holy Spirit in building the church. And so I want to pay attention to this phrase tonight, apostles and prophets. Um, and I want to do it in three, roughly three ways. So firstly, I want to, what I'm not going to do, let me say this actually, what I'm not going to do, actually I, I took a, a really sharp turn late this afternoon in the talk I was writing, uh, versus, and that one was going to be one in which I tried to give you in some detail a kind of description or definition of what apostles and prophets are, all right? I'm not going to give you that necessarily tonight. It's an interesting conversation, interesting, well, Actually, the reason I'm not doing it is because it's not interesting enough, um, at least not for this evening. But it's an important conversation. And if you want to talk about that, I don't know, we can geek out about it together um, after this. So I'm going to say a little bit about the role, especially of the apostles. Um, but I'm not going to give you like an exhaustive, like, this is exactly what those specific roles are. However, there is going to be some specificity in my initial way of paying attention to this. And the way that I'm going to kind of gather apostles and prophets is, is under the heading of authority. Um, that the way that the Holy Spirit builds the church through some authoritative vocations and roles, all right? Um, then we're going to kind of expand or loosen our understanding of apostles and prophets to kind of bring into view that longer list that Paul begins to list in chapter 4 and to recognize the way that these specific roles, um, they point to the way that really all of us are meant to be given in some specific way, for the upbuilding of the church, right? So that's like the second way we're going to pay attention to this phrase. And then the third way we're going to pay attention to it is to try to see in this passage, especially chapter three, what's at stake in whether or not we consent to be given in those kinds of ways. Um, what, what's at stake in the Holy Spirit building the church through the apostles and prophets? All right, so as for that first register of attention, 
uh, authority. So the Holy Spirit empowers and works intimately through authorized persons who inhabit specific roles of authority in the New Testament church. The Holy Spirit empowers and works intimately in and through authorized persons in specific roles in the New Testament church. So what I have in view roughly here is verses 3 through 6 in chapter 3. So in, in verses 3 through 6, the apostles and prophets are, person, are persons to whom the Holy Spirit has revealed the mystery of Christ. By the way, I just told you that this is about authority, but it's going to take me a minute to say why it has to be like a role of authority, okay? So just go with me on this, all right? So the, the way that apostles and prophets are described broadly in verses 3 through 6 is that they are persons to whom the Holy Spirit has revealed the mystery of Christ and through whom the Holy Spirit is revealing the mystery of Christ. In verse 6, Paul specifies that the mystery itself, what this mystery of Christ is, is, in short, it's the inclusion of the Gentiles into the people of God. And that that inclusion is happening through the proclamation of the gospel. All right? So the apostles and prophets, they're stewards of God's grace, as Paul describes himself. Um, they have been given by revelation. They didn't just figure it out themselves by reading the Bible, but they've been given by revelation um, the, an understanding of the mystery of Christ and what that mystery is, the inclusion of the Gentiles through the gospel. That the Holy Spirit has revealed the mystery of Christ to apostles and prophets signals that we live now at an utterly new and different time in the history of God doing stuff with people in the world than anything that came before the Holy Spirit's anointing the apostles and prophets in the New Testament. It was not made known, Paul says, to the sons of men in former generations in the way, so actually it, it was obscurely revealed, right, uh, in former generations, but not with the clarity and, and the radicality of revelation. Uh, it was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Um, so the Spirit and the apostles and prophets are inhabiting the apostles and prophets. It signals, as I said earlier, an epical change in time. And it's, it, it signals where we are in history compared to what happened before the arrival of the Spirit anointing the apostolic community. The first two chapters of the book of Acts really illumines in narrative form what Paul is describing here. It illumines the way that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the apostolic community, it really represented this decisive rupture, actually, a revolutionary rupture in the story of the people of God. Um, it was ultimately a creative rupture. Like it, it led to the emergence of, what, of this thing that eventually becomes called Christianity, which is in deep continuity with everything that came before, actually. And yet at the moment that it begins to take place, what's, what's being revealed is something that couldn't have been imagined or predicted apart from the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So it is this uh, dramatic, decisive rupture in time. There's a dramatic before and after, all right? So prior to Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, um, the very beginning of the book of Acts, um, Jesus is still around on earth. Um, he's, a, he's still a terrestrial figure. Um, 
He has been raised from the dead. And in the book of Acts, Jesus sticks around for 40 days longer than any of the accounts that we get, uh, at least any accounts that like, specify how long he was around after the resurrection in the Gospels, for example. So in the book of Acts, the story goes, like Jesus stays um, after he's raised from the dead. He's around for more than just like some random meals here and there. He stays, and what he does is continue to teach the disciples and instruct them to continue um, to, to form his apostles, um, of which there are 11 left of the original 12, plus there are these other folks who more loosely are called disciples. So, by the way, all of them are disciples, but the apostles already represent this like sub-community within the disciples at that point. Does that make sense? All right. So, when Jesus is about to ascend into heaven, the disciples ask Jesus a question about what time it is. They say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They are asking a question about their existing understanding of what it was going to look like for God to fulfill Old Testament promises, right? And they say, is it that time? And Jesus replies, it's not for you to know the times or the periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Okay, a few things about that reply from Jesus. So first of all, he shifts, he seems initially to shift the conversation from a conversation about time to a conversation about power. Um, but that power is going to define the age of the church, which is about to explode into existence in history. The church is going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon it. And it's a strange power. It's not a power that puts them in charge of the levers of history or of, or of the really power, seemingly powerful things that exist in the world. What it is, is power to bear witness. It's power to bear witness in such a way that people keep getting converted. And despite the fact that the Christians are profoundly vulnerable, it's a power that is recognizable enough that the powers that be already want to put an end to it. All right? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth, starting here and all the way to the ends of the earth. And he tells them, wait here in Jerusalem until you're baptized by the Holy Spirit. So while they're waiting, without instructions from Jesus to do this, or at least not without, record, without recorded instructions from Jesus to do, to do this, the community of the apostles and the disciples uh, seem to know what they ought to do to, to fill this time. Um, and what it is that they do is they, they're like, uh, we started out with 12 apostles. We lost one. His intestines just were spilled in a field. Um, his name is Judas. Uh, so he's not around anymore. He betrayed Jesus. And the obvious thing for us to do is to get another apostle because they're supposed to be 12. And so they have this conversation where, and this sort of communal discerning conversation where they're like, who should this be? What are the qualifications of an apostle? And we read this. So this is Peter talking. He says, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. So, and so from the time that Jesus begins to be recognizable on the landscape to anyone as the Messiah, right? The baptism of John. 
The person that's going to be an apostle, their qualification is going to be that they have to have been there from the time Jesus was baptized and been a part of the ministry. Had, they have been a disciple from then all the way until yesterday or whenever it was when we watched Jesus ascend into the clouds. And there are two folks that fit the bill. And long story short, um, they sort of flip a coin, not really, but they pray and do some other stuff. And this guy named Matthias becomes the 12th apostle. All right. So I say all this to say, firstly, that what it means to be an apostle has everything to do with, with witness. All right. You will be my witnesses. And that's something that Jesus is speaking over the apostolic community as a whole, not only the apostles. And yet, for that to be fulfilled, the apostolic community senses the necessity of there being actual folks who fill the role of apostleship. There already is an apostolic community, properly so-called, prior to the coming of the Holy Spirit. There has been one ever since Luke chapter 6, when Jesus went up on the mountain to be like, I need to recruit some dudes to do this job. And he prayed, and then the next day he picked 12, right? So there's been an apostolic community since then prior to the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Like, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, in some ways, up until now, has been limited to Jesus. So the way that the book of Acts begins is like, hang on. Yeah, I'm just going to read it to you. Over here. In chapter 1. This is a sequel that Luke is writing. So he says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit, to the apostles whom he had chosen. Jesus' person has so far been the one who has been anointed with the Holy Spirit, visibly and recognizably from the time of his baptism. All right? And what he does in his formation of the apostles is through the Holy Spirit. His instruction to them is through the Holy Spirit. All right? So, so far, the apostolic community is, is a community that has been trained by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, but that has not yet anointed itself by the Holy Spirit. Um, and some of what it means to be an apostle is already established, right? The apostles are the ones that have a share in Jesus' ministry. They are sent out to invite other people. That's what apostle means, is the sent ones. They're sent out to invite other people into the good news of Jesus. They're witnesses to the earthly ministry of Jesus. They already know and understand that what this role means is that we have seen it ourselves from the beginning. We can testify because we were there from the beginning until the day that he ascended. They're witnesses to the earthly ministry of Jesus, but they have not yet received the power that will animate and propel their mission to the ends of the earth. And then one day they do, on the day of Pentecost, they do receive that power. And it's not until they receive that power, and in fact, until chapter 10 and 15 of the book of Acts, that even after they've received this power, that even the OG apostles don't comprehend what Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 3 about the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. But it begins to be revealed to the community of believers, the inclusion of the Gentiles begins to be revealed once the Holy Spirit is unleashed upon them. It's by the revelatory action of the Spirit that the Lord's formerly hidden plan comes to be known. And now what the apostles and prophets already knew about Jesus, right, it's now empowered by 
the same spirit that anointed Jesus' ministry, what they already knew about him. And now that same spirit that anointed Jesus is revealing to them things that they couldn't have imagined, even from within that memory, that firsthand account of Jesus's ministry. So in many ways, apostleship points to the power of the Holy Spirit and not to any human power or experience, right? And yet at the same time, the existence of the apostleship does point to the need for specifically authorized persons who have a specific kind of story. Um, it, it, it couldn't be just anyone upon whom the, tr- the Lord would found that mission. It needed to be people with certain firsthand experience. Does that make sense? They were authorized by what they had seen and by what they had been taught by Jesus in his earthly ministry. All right. And we might ask why that is. Uh, There are lots of reasons why, but one of the reasons that we can point to with specific reference to the passages in front of us tonight is this, that in order to sustain the claims of what Paul calls this mystery of Christ, in order to sustain the claims of the gospel as it continues to develop, while the church is struggling to catch up to what the Holy Spirit is doing, in order to sustain the claim specifically that the Gentiles are included by faith, and not by circumcision, but that through the gospel, that inclusion in the people of God has been made available to everyone. In order to make sense of that, that claim couldn't come from just any Tom, Dick, or Harry. Does that make sense? Because it wasn't immediately obvious from the Bible all by itself. It had to be revealed through people who had submitted themselves over the course of years to the the concrete teaching and authority and presence of Christ. Jesus had to teach those guys how to reread the Bible in a way they didn't know how to read it before. And even then, that needed to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so so it, it, it took someone from within Judaism, thoroughly within Judaism, And someone who had submitted themselves to the teaching of a Jew, right? The one that ended up being the Messiah. Like, if those guys say that the Gentiles are included, then that claim has the potential. It doesn't have to be. A lot of people reject it still. But it has the potential to be coherent. Does that make sense? So the claims of the gospel require some authoritative roles. So one of the places we see this worked out is, again, our reading tonight from Acts chapter 15. So this is the place, as we mentioned a couple weeks ago, where the church is making a definitive decision about do the Gentiles have to get circumcised or not in order to be a part of the people of God? Do they have to, is membership in the people of God a matter of adherence to the law? Or is there something about what has happened through the cross and resurrection of Christ and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that reveals that God is gathering people in in a way that goes beyond the, the former boundaries? that there used to be. And in Acts chapter 15, the church decides, um, no, it doesn't happen through circumcision. It happens through faith. It happens through the gospel. Um, And there are people who make the final authoritative judgment about that. Specifically, James, who is one of the original 12 apostles, um, is like, I have decided 
I've listened to, to what these different people have seen and said to me about what, they, what we've seen on, on, the, on the cutting edge of the mission field with God gathering in the Gentiles. And they read scripture together and they wrestle. And then one of the apostles is like, I'm rendering a verdict. And so here's what we propose. And then they draft this letter together that they send out to the new Gentile believers in Antioch. In verse 22 of chapter 15 of Acts, we read, Then the apostles and the elders, with the consent of the whole church, decided to choose men from among their members and to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leaders among the brother, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the believers of Gentile origin in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that certain persons who have gone out from us, though with no instructions, instructions from us, these are unauthorized persons. This is, this is a story about authority. Who and how has the authority to say what is and isn't allowed? What is and isn't definitive and authoritative doctrine and practice for the body of Christ? And I'm not going to get deeply into this tonight, but I just want to say one of the other reasons why you have to have authority in the church and why it's really a gift through which the Holy Spirit builds the church is that without authority, there's no such thing as unity. Because at the end of the day, there has to be someone who for some kind of legitimate reasons gets to say what does and doesn't count. Does that make sense? Anyway, one of the things they say in this letter is, we know that you've heard some stuff. And, it, and maybe it sounded doctrinally plausible to you. You could definitely make a case from the Old Testament to say that actually you do have to get circumcised. But what the believers from the Jerusalem Council say is those persons are not authorized to speak on behalf of the body of Christ. And what we're doing is sending you authorized persons with this authoritative letter. And what is it that makes this letter authoritative? Um, it is that the church has come to this decision together and they specifically narrate ways that the Holy Spirit has been active in that decision, right? Um, it's possible because there's an apostolic structure in place. Um, by the way, um, so there's an apostolic pronouncement that's being sent in this letter, and some of the people that are getting sent are prophets. They're named as prophets. Two of these dudes are um, in, in chapter 15. Um, it says, yeah, whatever. That guy Barsabbas, I think, and the other one, Silas, right? Anyway, yeah, two of those guys are prophets. All right, apostles and prophets. Here we go, moving on. So, somewhat of a sidebar here. I just want to note that the Holy Spirit, just kind of going back to the big picture here, the Holy Spirit sets people apart for these roles. The Holy Spirit gives the church the gift of apostles and prophets. But the Holy Spirit is also manifest in the outworking of those roles, okay? And it, so to put this more crassly, at times the Holy Spirit is named, like his voice is named, working through the structure of the church. So for example, in chapter 10, the Holy Spirit says, like the Holy Spirit specifically is named as speaking to Peter, you go do such and such a thing. And likewise, in chapter 13 of Acts, there's a, a, a community in Antioch of believers that are gathered together, some of whom are specified as prophets and teachers. And in the midst of a worship setting, the Holy Spirit says to that 
It's, and it's like, the Holy Spirit said, specifically, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas for the work that I've appointed for them. So there are times that, the Holy, that it's very obvious that it's the Holy Spirit speaking, okay? That the Holy Spirit's voice is named. But there are other times that the Holy Spirit's action is just kind of claimed by the people that are inhabiting these roles. Are you following with me here? So, for example, as I already said, like, in chapter 13, with the Holy Spirit's voice, we, it's like, this is the Holy Spirit talking, and it's very obvious. But in chapter 15, the people who write that letter say things like, for it seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit to do such and such a thing. But it's not explicit in the, in the way the passage is narrated that the Holy Spirit did say such and such a thing. But does that mean that they are claiming too much for themselves? Or instead, does it point us to the way that there's an extent to which it is assumed in the fabric of the way that the church is narrated in the Word of God that we are to assume this posture that these people that, that inhabit these roles, and I understand this is risky and scary in some kinds of ways, but that we can assume that the Holy Spirit is active in and through people who fill those roles. Apostles are named, elders are named, prophets are named. And all the church even is named in the same passage in Acts chapter 13. And even though we don't get, excuse me, Acts chapter 15, even though we don't get somebody saying, the Holy Spirit said X, Y, and Z, nonetheless the believers are able to, to claim it seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit. Um, so again, the Holy Spirit sets these folks apart, but also the work of the Holy Spirit is evident through the outworking of their role. All right. So, so much for some of the specifics around uh, the language of apostles and prophets um, in Ephesians chapter 3. Moving on uh, to our second register of attending um, this phrase. This is uh, beginning to, to sort of suss out and be awakened to our own peculiar and specific share in the myriad ministry of the gospel. So Paul says about himself, of this gospel... I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. I was made a minister, Paul says, of this gospel. And for Paul, the specifics of what that means fall under the rubric of words like apostle and prophet, right? But it becomes very clear that, um, that that is not at all an exhaustive list of the ways that people are invited into a share of being a minister of the gospel, all right? So in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit gives the church really a very rich, kind of a vast constellation of ministerial vocations. So there are definitely apostles and prophets, but as we already saw here in, in our readings from Acts and from Ephesians in chapter 4 tonight, there are also these other roles that are named evangelists, shepherds, teachers. We get elders, in chapter 15 of Acts, and in other places. And then there are the places in the New Testament where we get words like bishops. Um, there are other kinds of shares in the ministry of the gospel that are less explicitly given a title in other places in the New Testament. But the point here is just to note that in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit gives the church not just apostles and prophets, but this really rich constellation of ministerial vocations. If I forget to say this later on, I just want to say like, these days when we talk about someone being called to the ministry, we have, like very, we have a, a much more impoverished 
like handful of things that we think that means than the kind of really rich constellation that is on display in the New Testament of ministerial vocations. Um, and we need to ask ourselves like what to make of that. Um, anyway, but moving on. So there's a great deal of overlap between these vocations. I mean, one of the reasons why I didn't want to try to give you a diagram of what these words mean tonight is because there is so much overlap and mutual reinforcement between what an apostle and a prophet and an elder and an evangelist and all these different roles are in the New Testament. There's a huge amount of overlap and mutual reinforcement. Um, indeed, it seems that some people have multiple descriptors that are the right kind of descriptor for the role that they inhabit. So, uh, so Paul um, in Ephesians is described as an apostle. He's not explicitly described as an apostle in the book of Acts, although the book does seem to suggest, the, narr the narrative suggests that that would be the right title for him. But he's called an apostle here. He certainly claims that title for himself in other places in his writings. Um, he seems to suggest that he's a, a prophet here as well. As I mentioned in Acts chapter 13, he's listed under the rubric of people that are called prophets. And so just in Paul's person, we can see that like people can fit under multiple headings at once. Um, it's not just this like super like cleanly delineated delegation, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, anyway, moving on. So there's this overlap, right, um, of these people's jobs. And yet, on the other hand, there also is this very deeply fruitful differentiation between these roles that, that permits an agile and a robust ministry for the New Testament church so that you can have things happen like what happened in Acts chapter 15, where you have Barsabbas and Silas who are prophets that are sent for the edification, for the encouragement and the upbuilding of the church for a time with this letter. You know, they come and they encourage and they, and they build up the church. And Paul and Barnabas are there. They, their role is not explicitly named. You know, are they apostles? Are they prophets? But they stay there um, and they do that work with the prophets. And then those folks, the Barsabbas and Silas leave and Paul and Barnabas stay. And they continue uh, for a much longer period of time to, to teach and to form that community of Christians in Antioch, in Antioch. And then they have the freedom to go back to other places that they've done ministry and continue to build up those communities. And so there is this fruitful differentiation between these roles where not everybody has to do all of the same things. There can be the overlap and there can also be the freedom to go and do lots of stuff, lots of places at once. So again, rather than trying to define all of these roles, and rather than thinking that this is an exhaustive list of roles, I want to invite you to, to consider the way that the phrase apostles and prophets points to the reality of the Holy Spirit making ministers of the Gospels, of the Gospel. The Holy Spirit makes ministers of the Gospel, all kinds of ministers of the Gospel. And I want to ask you, is there any such thing as a Christian that doesn't fall somewhere under the heading of a minister of the gospel? Um, the Holy Spirit is the one who summons specific people to specific jobs, which together help constitute the collective missionary work of the church, the witnessing community. 
In Acts chapter 4 at the beginning, excuse me, in Ephesians chapter 4 at the beginning, we read, Each one of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then Paul, you know, he gives us that longer list, right? But if you don't fit on that list somewhere, that doesn't refute the fact that each one of us was given this grace. And that the pattern of what it means for, a great, for that grace to be given is to be given as a gift for the upbuilding of the body of Christ, to have a share in that ministry of the gospel. All right, so moving on to our third register of attention to this phrase. Um, what's at stake in the apostles and the prophets? Um, it is, as Paul says uh, in Ephesians chapter 3, it is to bring to light for everyone, to bring to light for everyone, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. The Holy Spirit's gift of the apostles and prophets points to the universal scope of God's saving work. To bring to light for everyone. Um, you don't get the church that is capable of going to the ends of the earth and preaching not just to Jews, but also to Gentiles. And not just here, but way over there. You do not get the message of salvation extended in all the places that it is needed, which is everywhere. There is no person in this world that does not need to hear the good news about Jesus of Nazareth. And the way that that happens is that people consent to be given by the Holy Spirit for the upbuilding of the body of Christ. To bring to light for everyone is what's at stake in the Holy Spirit giving the gift of apostles and prophets. These are not just job titles. These are not uh, the names of like bureaucratic functionaries. Apostles and prophets are vessels of God's power. They are part of the means by which God's power to save reaches the ends of the earth. And this is really important. It's not just because if we consent to be given by the Spirit that the Holy Spirit makes us say stuff to people about Jesus. But it's again because when we consent to be given by the Spirit in specific roles, that the Lord makes there be the church in the world. The gospel reaches the ends of the earth through the upbuilding of the church. So again, the ministry of the gospel is aiming not just at individual people going out and converting individual people, but the ministry of the gospel aims at the emergence of the Christian community. Like That's what evangelism and all the other stuff is trying to do, is to build a church in the world. Because the community of believers is the thing through which God is going to save humanity. And the community of believers, not just an individual witness, but the community of believers, the real potent and powerful witness of the gospel in the world. All right, so to move toward um, sort of reflecting on so what about any of this stuff, uh, I have roughly three categories of reflection for us here. Um, the first is, who needs authority? The second is, Mm, I don't know. How do we be given? Something like that. And the third is uh, 
intimacy with God through the ministry of the gospel, right? So, kind of going back to the reality of the ministry of the gospel and the church itself needing authority in this hierarchical structure that we see in Scripture. Uh, I think if we reflect for just a second about the present moment that we find ourselves living in and the proclivities that we have as people living where we do and when we do, we have a deep revulsion, most of us, to that notion of authority. Um, I think we might, it, truth, if we are truthful, respond to all of this by saying, like, who needs authority? In fact, because of the Holy Spirit, who needs authority? Right? Like, how do we need specific persons in specific roles who have some kind of power that other people don't necessarily have whenever all of us have the Holy Spirit, right? And this is really baked in, especially for we Protestants. It's baked into our DNA in a lot of ways. Like, part of the basic impulse of Protestantism is, anti is, is anti-authoritarianism. It's like, because we have the Bible, and because we have the Holy Spirit, what we don't need, for sure, is priest, and definitely not a pope. Like, we don't want anybody doing what James did in Acts chapter 15, where he's like, well, I'm the one that gets to decide. And so, we've, we've tried to flatten the vision of, of the church as it appears in Scripture in such a way that there isn't a hierarchy of an authority structure. But the Holy Spirit gives the church a constellation of authoritative roles. That's the way the Holy Spirit decided to do it in the Bible, is to give the church a constellation of authoritative roles. The Holy Spirit builds the church and spreads the gospel through the activities of authorization and consecration. They're not always the same thing, just to be clear. But this is how the Holy Spirit does it. Certain people get authority. Certain people get set apart. That's how the Holy Spirit builds the church and spreads the gospel. It is contrary to the scriptural narrative um, to think of the Holy Spirit in opposition to authority. It just is. Um, that's contrary to scripture. To be clear, the Holy Spirit isn't setting up tyrants, right, in these roles of authority. The Holy Spirit, because they are, because this authority is always derivative of the authority of Jesus, who's crucified, who washes his disciples' feet, like the authorization has a peculiarly Jesus shape to it. And so it is supposed to, even in the midst of the exercise of its authority, it is supposed to remain vulnerable and not coercive. And it is supposed to be something that invites the discernment of people, it seems at least, on the basis of Acts chapter 15, all across the hierarchy structure. So you get the apostles, you get people like somewhere in the middle, you get people called elders who are basically like local church pastors, and then you get the whole church that's a part of the authoritative pronouncement about the inclusion of the Gentiles, right? So yes, there's someone in charge, and yet it also depends upon the entirety of the body of Christ. So this authority isn't a closed, like, black box. 
And yet, it is real authority. Some people do get to say, in the end, what the boundaries are, what doesn't doesn't count, what isn't isn't faithful practice. And despite the fact that it's supposed to be a Jesus-shaped authority, that doesn't mean that the kind of authority the church is given can't be abused. Of course it can, right? And so I think we have to be honest about the fact that our revulsion to authority comes from living in a world where, whether it's in the church or somewhere else, the abuses of authority are very evident to us. And you, so you can see, you can feel very justified, understandably so, in rejecting the need for hierarchy and authority. And yet, it remains the case that it is by design. Even, I mean, Jesus knew his disciples were fallen. He knew the apostles were fallen. It is by design, even in a fallen world, as much as it may scandalize us, that it's through authorization and consecration of specific authority figures that the Holy Spirit builds the church and spreads the gospel. Um, yeah, it's not super easy nowadays, you know, I think. I don't, know, I don't know if I need to say more about this or not. I mean, it used to be the case that we Protestants could kind of be like, well, first of all, authority isn't really our thing anyway. Right? That's the Catholics. because They have priests and popes and all that kind of wacko stuff. I don't actually think it's wacko stuff. I'm just saying that's, our, that's how we feel about it. <clears throat> Plus, there's all kind of crazy child abuse in the Catholic Church. Right? This is highly publicized. And not, I mean, it should be. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to gloss over it. But... I think it's increasingly dishonest for we Protestants to pretend, first of all, like we don't have real serious authority in the leadership of our churches. I mean, whether it's authorized authority or not, there are people that are certainly operating in positions of authority in the Protestant church. Uh, if you haven't listened to the, uh, the Mars Hill podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, you should be. It's freaking awesome. Um, and it tells the story of this guy, Mark Driscoll, who is like the, the pinnacle of Protestantism in so many ways, right? And also has w wielded a kind of authority and power that is unrivaled, I think, by maybe any, I mean, any religious figure I can think of that's on the planet right now, at least among the thousands of people that were following him. I mean, even the Pope, I don't know if he's got the kind of pull, no joke. I mean, if you actually talk to Catholics these days, people are kind of ambivalent about the Pope, depending upon where they fall, right? But the people that were under, under Mark Driscoll, like, they were walking with him and doing what he said. And there's all kinds of twisted stuff that he did. I mean, sexual abuse is not limited to, to Catholics and people in positions of authority. So I'm just trying to name the fact that, like, yes, you have all kinds of reasons to be like, probably authority is a bad idea. I'm just telling you if you do that, though, that in some ways you're abandoning hope on the story of the church as it's actually written in scripture. And the answer isn't that we need to get rid of authority. It's that we need to try to be vigilant about whether or not it's Jesus-shaped authority or not. So second, the, question, the second big question I want to ask for us is, in what way might the Holy Spirit be seeking to give you as a gift so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be displayed in the world. Um, there are a whole bunch of, of kinds of ministers of the gospel in the New Testament through whom the Holy Spirit wants to build the church. Um, the apostles and prophets are the foundation 
Maybe you don't think that you have that role of being an apostle or a prophet. I mean, probably not a lot of people do, right? Maybe you even don't think that you fit into any of, the, of that longer list of things. But realize that that longer list of things points to a list that encompasses everyone that is properly called a Christian. Everyone, therefore, who is summoned into, by the Holy Spirit, a share of the ministry of the gospel. There's a lot of kinds of ministries of the gospel in the New Testament. And the question for us is, like, how open are we to, be, to become whatever kind of minister the Lord is calling us to be? Um, where would you go to look to find out, like, where, where would the ministry be that you would do if you want to start doing the ministry of the gospel? This is like, an, like a, a sub-question here. Um, the first place you might think about is like your classroom. You might imagine yourself answering this summons by being like, I'm going to go to my classrooms at Tech or you know, places that people eat on campus or your dorm room or wherever it is and be like, I'm going to go and tell people about Jesus. And I would like for you to do that. That would be great. Um, go and tell people the gospel anywhere and everywhere you want. But as cool as that would be, again, I want to draw your attention to the way that so much evangelism in the New Testament comes down to the church getting built and the church getting strengthened. And it's almost a cliche among Christians to be like, we need to get outside the walls of the church to reach the lost. But in many ways, the story in the Bible is that the Holy Spirit builds the walls of the church so that the lost can be gathered into that place. And because Jesus sets the city upon the hill, people know where to go. And so I just want to signal for you that the first place you might look when you actually try to start working out what your place might be in the ministry of the gospel is the church, is the Christian community. It's through the church that the manifold wisdom of God is going to be displayed to the whole cosmos. Not through just like one like, like lone gun out there making it happen on his or her own. So if you're going to try to answer this question, what's my role? Then you might look to here. You might, you might ask yourself, like, what does it mean for me to build up the community of the Wesley? What does it mean for me to be a part of nourishing this body? How do I give myself to these people? How do I become a minister of the gospel to the people that are sitting in this room right now? How do I become a minister of the gospel to the people that will be sitting in whatever room you're in on Thursday or on Monday in your small group? Are you trying to be a minister of the gospel to the Christian community? Because as counterintuitive as it might seem, that's how the world is going to be reached. It's through the upbuilding of the body of Christ. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is made known. The church is what's getting built in the gift of the apostles and prophets and everybody else on the longer, more exhaustive list. How do you discern what your ministry is? So I ask the question, where, right? I'm suggesting to you, try here. Try to be a minister of the gospel to these people. But how do you figure out what it is, what your role is? What is your specific job? Um, 
Other people can tell you what your job is. Maybe better than you can tell yourself. Now, I'm not going to say that you don't have any helpful or important information about how you might be given to the body of Christ. You certainly do, right? But for the Apostle Paul, for example, who wrote a lot of the New Testament, it was kind of a big deal, about whom half of the book of Acts is written, right? For the Apostle Paul, God told someone else what his vocation was before he told him. This guy who Paul had never met before got the word from Jesus, this very eloquent description of the vocation that God was calling Paul into. And that guy came and told Paul. He received his ministry through the laying on of someone else's hands who described to him the work that he was going to do. He didn't choose it all by himself. This continues... In, in like less sweeping ways, but nonetheless in important ways, again, in chapter 13 of the book of Acts, the believers in Antioch, like I said earlier, they're praying together, and the Holy Spirit says, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas for the work to which I have appointed them. Paul and Barnabas didn't get that message all by themselves, alone in the privacy of their prayer closet. It was a worship service where the body of Christ heard collectively and clearly. This is one of the clearest places that the Holy Spirit speaks. There's all kinds of places in the New Testament where we can be like, we can infer that the Spirit is mediating the voice of God. Or we can tell that the Holy Spirit is making the voice of Christ audible, right? But here it's just the Holy Spirit. One of only two places, at least in the book of Acts, that I can think of where that happens. The Holy Spirit's voice is heard crystal clear in this communal worship setting. And it's the voice of the community together who's able to send Paul and Barnabas on the work to which the Holy Spirit has appointed them. Are you listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit as articulated by the body of Christ? To what extent do you assume that to hear God about what your role is, whether it's your role in this immediate community or your role for your lifelong vocation, to what extent do you take it for granted that where you're going to hear from God on that is by listening to the voices of anointed brothers and sisters? Are you listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit as articulated by the community? We are so deeply trained to find out our true selves by getting away from other people. And I, and I don't want to deny that there is some, whatever, there's, I don't want to muddy the waters here. There's some important things to be said about being who you specifically are. Okay? But the question isn't, can you be yourself here? It's like, how do you know what the self is that the Lord is calling you to be? And we're so deeply trained to assume that the way that you're going to find that is by creating this imaginary vacuum where you decide all by yourself. It's by getting away from the voice and the influence of other people. But again, the way that people find out what they're supposed to do in the narrative of the New Testament is by getting drawn into the intimacy of Christian community. Likewise, we are so comfortable doing what's best for us. And then maybe... If we're pious, finding a way to narrate that as being something that, that God did for us. Um, 
I mean, our first, when, we, when people are vocationally discerning, when you're discerning what you're going to devote your life to, it's very difficult not to start from the posture of what is going to be good for me from your need and your wants. And again, I don't want to say that that doesn't need to be some kind of part of it, but it doesn't need to be the starting place. We are so comfortable and so habituated in doing what is best for us that I often hear even preachers articulate ways that they made very significant decisions about why they went here or there or elsewhere by saying something like, you know, effectively just saying like, this is what was good for me, was to do this thing. Um, I continue to be struck by all the ways that communities where we, the specific communities where we do ministry have a claim on the way that our story is told and have a claim on the direction that our, that our vocation, that our role, that our work in the church is taking, the path that our, that our life's work can take. The way that specific communities continue, even communities that maybe we're not a part of in the present, can have a claim on where we go and what we do, and that they should have that claim on where we go and what we do. So at the risk of seeming like I'm bashing some people that used to be here at the Wesley, I'm really not. But I just want to say that recently it was brought to my attention that like, lots of times we sort of celebrate the fact that like God uses our ministry to call up people into vocational ministry. There's like traditional roles that you think about of going off to seminary and growing up to be a preacher and stuff like that. And there's all these people, like something like a dozen people have been called into professional ministry in the last five or six years at Wesley. And, uh, but it was brought to my attention in a board meeting recently that like none of those people are coming back to Louisiana or very few of them are like Alana's still here, thankfully. Um, but like the vast majority of them are getting kind of like seduced into sexier places to serve uh, other than North Louisiana or South Louisiana or wherever in Louisiana. And um, a specific, there was a, several of these things got brought to my attention in a recent meeting, and I found out about a person, actually, who we had been a, an integral part of, not just sort of helping this person get to seminary, but, like, we've been a part of their official ordination process. And, like, the last time we saw them, we actually got together as a board and some students here and, and helped to discern and authorize them um, in their vocation and to be a part of commissioning them. Um, or of, of helping them become what we call certified. This is the first major step in, in the ordination process. And, uh, and then I found out recently that they had bailed and they'd left this conference and now they're going to go serve somewhere else. Which, like, I understand why they're going to this other conference because it seems cooler in all kinds of ways and, like, they're probably going to have more friends than they might have in Louisiana. But I texted that person and I just said, hey, I just heard that, you know, you decided to transfer this other conference and um, I was sorry to hear that. Like, not because I'm mad at you, but because, like, we really could have used you here in Louisiana, like we needed you here. And what's happening in that moment is that I'm kind of saying, we still have some kind of appropriate claim on you. Not to steer the wheel forever for your future, right? But there's something about having come out of this community that you at least owe us a conversation and ask, and the opportunity to give input in the course and direction of where your future is taking you. 
Not to mention the fact that, like, the reason, it's not just because of, like, because we did lots of stuff for you, so you owe it to us, but because what it means to be called to anywhere always has something very deeply to do with the needs of the community, with the needs of the church in a specific place, and not just with what we want to do and what's convenient for us. And so, while you're up in North Carolina, around all these people that are going to Duke Divinity School, that seem like they really know how to talk about cool things, um, and seem like just this like really cool club of articulate people, of course, that seems like the funnest place to do ministry. Whereas like here in Louisiana, I don't know, I'm like considered young clergy, and I'm 37. And I mean, the next bracket up is like 60 or something. You know what I'm saying? Um, but like, what I can see here that you can't see there is how badly we need you. And I want the opportunity to say that. Does that make sense? So the needs of the community have an opportunity, should have an opportunity to have a claim upon us in the direction of our future. Um, there's a positive aspect of this as well. Like, not just a potentially sort of corrective aspect. So, like, Pete, I just wrote a reference letter. I had to write two hasty reference letters for Pete and Becca this last week for Duke Divinity School um, because they both are planning after they finish the internship to go to seminary. And uh, they asked me kind of at the last minute, especially one of the two of them asked me kind of at the last minute to write this, this reference letter. And um, so, anyway, I, I, as I was writing Pete's letter, um, I found myself remembering conversations I've had with him over the years in which we've been like, I, I, we've been talking about like, what does it mean to have a calling, right? To be called and set apart and consecrated by God to do something. And I've always told him that like a lot of it has to do with what, it does have to do with what you want. Like the beginning of vocational ministry oftentimes starts with just like, I, whether I want to admit it or not, and lots of times people don't want to admit it, but whether I want to admit it or not, I really want to devote my life to the work of telling people about Jesus, of reading the Bible and reading the Bible with other people and marrying and burying people or whatever it is, right? I want to do this. But at some point, calling for it really to be real does have this element in it where it's like, but God's the one that called you. It was the Holy Spirit that said that you're set apart for this work. And Pete, at various times, has, I think it's fair to say, has been like, I'm not sure if I can precisely name exactly where and when that happened in this like super crystal clear way, which is actually a very common thing for people to feel. And as I was writing this talk, I realized that like, and as I was writing his reference letter, I realized like, to some extent, it doesn't matter if you can say that God is really the one that called you. So long as the body of Christ can say that God is really the one that called you. And I can tell you exactly where I was when I knew that God had called Pete. I was sitting in this room on a Sunday evening Eucharist listening to him preach. And one of the things I wrote in his letter this week is that as I was listening to him, I just thought, this man is called. He is called to be a pastor. I'd known for a long time that's what he wanted to do. I knew for a long time that's what he planned to do. But that's when I knew he was called. And what I said in my letter about him was, I realized it not just because he was good at preaching. Because there's lots of y'all that are really good at preaching, actually. I mean, most Sundays, I hear really good sermons. Seriously. And Pete's sermon that Sunday was a good sermon. But that's not what it was. It was just evident to me that the Lord had set apart his voice to be a pastor, that he was consecrated and anointed for that work that happened in the context of worship. 
And so even if Pete can't say confidently that he's called to the ministry, there's a community of believers, and this is what it means that the community has a claim on you and gets to say what you're doing. It's not just that our immediate reaction to that is to be like, oh, well, that's going to hold us back. If somebody else gets to decide, that's an infringement on my freedom. But what if actually the thing that you most deeply and passionately want to do, you don't quite have the confidence in and of yourself to claim it for yourself? Most of the most important things you could want to do in life are like that, actually. Whether it's going off to seminary or not, or something less seemingly ministerial. And so there's something in it for you as well to submit yourself to the church telling you what your job and your role is. Similarly, Becca Beck, and this is less about her letter, which I won't disclose as much of here, although it's a pretty good one as well. <clears throat> um, one of the things I wrote about in that letter, though, is that, uh, well, I am. I guess I'm going to talk about your letter, Becca. Um, so I always throw a little criticism in to every letter, because I think it, it makes it believable for me to say, this person is really, really great, blah, 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 blah. But if that's all I say, they're going to be like, OK, sure. Um, you're just enamored of this person. So I do always try to name, here's a growing edge. Man, Alana wrote me a reference letter for part of my ordination packet, and she definitely named some growing edges uh, in that letter, by the way. Anyway, um, so anyway, uh, it's not just me that does this. I talked about the fact that, um, that Becca's always been a very deeply selfless person since she came to the Wesley Foundation, a servantly person, but that she's very deeply tempted to try to lead from a place other than right up front. And the growing edge for her is to realize that actually God has made her to be a person that's supposed to be up front, that's supposed to be leading the charge. And that for whatever reason, she doesn't always want to do that. I think it is probably because of virtuous, mostly virtuous things inside of her that make her want to try to make room for other people to get up front and to inhabit these roles. But I can tell you that um, when we had a vacancy in our worship leadership a few years ago, Becca Beck stepped forth and began to lead the community by offering her voice in worship and immediately what it was like to be in the presence of God in worship here dramatically changed. Despite the fact that Becca, to my knowledge, had never done that before, had you? Right, didn't know how to play piano. And had never been a worship leader before, yes? So as willingly as she did that, and as impactful as it was, it's still something that she's kind of tried to squirm her way out of at times. <laughs> and this year, part of our conversation on staff has been to say repeatedly to Becca, listen, we hear you. Somebody's got to be here next year to be in that role, and we've got to train them up, because next year, probably you're going to go to Duke and never see us anymore. But right now, it's your voice that we need. And Becca's responded at times by being like, great, so what you mean is this other person's voice. Who has a great voice, whoever it is, like Alana or whoever, you know? Um, and we're like, no, no. The Lord is calling you to lead us into his presence with your voice, specifically, right here and now. So the community rightfully has a claim 
upon discerning what it is the Spirit is asking of us. That is true for all of you. Whether or not you're going to end up being up here playing piano and singing or preaching or not, you don't get to decide all by yourself what your role is in being a minister of the gospel and the building up of the body of Christ. Even in my own life, this will be the last story that I tell. Um, sorry, I'm just thinking about how to tell the story. So I was filling out my ordination paperwork, you know. I've been talking about this a lot, I know. But. And there was a place that I had to write in the name of the church that first helped me become a certified candidate back in East Tennessee, in Kingsport, Tennessee, where I was a youth minister after I was an intern here at the Wesley. It's called Mountain View United Methodist Church, where I was a youth minister for four years. And uh, that was a long time ago. Like, it started in, I don't know, I guess I, 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 my time there ended in 2013. So how many years has that been? 21, my 13. Eight-ish years. It's been a long time. Been a lot of places since then. I feel like I was just a wee babe looking back at that time. Um, and so writing the name Mountain View United Methodist Church on my ordination paperwork in some way it seemed like the most irrelevant thing to where I'm at right now in this final step of becoming an ordained pastor. And yet, in my actual interview, stories that that community tells about me and the ministry that the Holy Spirit did through me when I was at Mountain View occupied a lot of time. And in many ways, and I didn't introduce this myself, but through, through no devising of my own, I mean, it's the last thing that I would have thought to bring up in these conversations. But in many ways, the claim that that community has on me and the way that they narrate who God's called me to be was decisive in the Board of Ordinary Ministry eight years later, when I'm not even thinking about that anymore, determining the fate and direction of my future as a pastor. The body of Christ has a claim on the direction of your role and your vocation. Lastly, we find intimacy with God through the ministry of the gospel. So this is one more layer to what's in it to you, for you, to be given to the church in the ministry of the gospel. Paul says about himself, let me just put it this way, what it, what it feels like to Paul to be given into the role of, of the apostle and the prophet is profoundly personal. It is not just a day job for him. He says, I was made a minister of the gospel according to the gift of God's grace. To me, he says, even though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. Moreover, what he gets to do in doing the ministry of the gospel is to bring to light things that have been hidden in the depths of God. Sometimes we make this division between ministry as this external action or this active life and then the interior life, life of prayer as being internal and not active. But the way it's talked about in scripture is that like doing ministry brings you into the depths of God. It has to. Because that's what the work of the gospel is, is making known, bringing to light things that have been hidden for ages in the very person of God. A relationship with God has everything to do 
with its experiencing the grace of being made some kind of minister or other. We are invited into not just the grace of being saved, but the grace of finding out that we have a share in the ministry of the gospel. And your personal devotion, the feelings that you feel when we're singing songs about how much God loves us, the feelings that you feel being loved by God on your own and wherever it is that you pray, which are great things to feel, but those things will always be incomplete. Your experience of intimacy with God will always be incomplete if you don't find out how the Holy Spirit wants to give you as a minister of the gospel to build up the body of Christ. At this table tonight, we touch upon the thread of the ministry of the apostles and prophets. The same thread that traces all the way back over two millennia to the first apostolic community who gathered around the table with Jesus on the night in which he gave himself up for us. And here, by the grace of God, the Holy Spirit invites us to take up our own role in the shared labor of the gospel. Here the Holy Spirit makes us one in ministry to all the world. Or in Jesus' words from Acts chapter chapter 1, to the ends of the earth, until Christ comes. Amen.